0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Liz Glynn. Glynn's open house is on view now in Doris C. Friedman Plaza in New York Central Park. It was commissioned by the Public Art Fund and will remain on view through September 24th. It takes as its jumping-off point Friedman Plaza's unusual site, the place where Democratic Central Park meets corporate Midtown meets the aristocratic Upper East Side. Glynn's sculpture highlights the class distinctions that separate the park from the city by referencing a Fifth Avenue interior designed by Gilded Age architect Stanford White. The exhibition was curated by Daniel Palmer. Glynn's work routinely engages history and the way both it and historical objects are considered in the present day. Her work has been presented or exhibited at MOCA in Los Angeles, the New Museum in New York, the Decord of a Sculpture Park in Concord, Massachusetts, the Petit Palais in Paris, at LACMA, and more. This fall, MoCA will present Glynn's The Archaeology of Another Possible Future in the museum's cavernous Building 5. On the second segment, Nina Schnell-Abney joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of a 10-year survey titled Nina Schnell-Abney Royal Flush. The exhibition is at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University through July 16th, when it will travel to the Chicago Cultural Center and then to Los Angeles, where it will be jointly presented by the Institute of Contemporary Art, And the california african-american museum the exhibition was curated by the nashers marshall n price the catalog will be available later this spring but first liz glenn after a break on view now sf moma presents matisse diebenkorn a story of artistic inspiration over the course of four decades california painter richard diebenkorn was deeply influenced by Henri Matisse while forging a style entirely his own. The exhibition reveals how much the two painters share in their use of lush, vibrant, joyful color, attentiveness to structure and composition, choice of subject matter, and the richly layered surfaces of their canvases. See their art side by side for the first time and encounter a surprising new view of two of the 20th century's most extraordinary painters. Matisse Diebenkorn is on view through May 29th at SF MoMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist, is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham's sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, The first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago who was identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. And we're back. Liz Glynn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your work tends to address history and how we think of ourselves and our time and our places, our physical places and objects within history. We could start with all kinds of theory nerd type stuff, but the more of your work I look at, the more I wonder when you became interested in history. Was it as a kid? Was it later?
1: I grew up outside of Boston and uh, my mother was an architect. So I was always very drawn to the built environment. And when you're growing up around Boston, sort of every brick has a history and every inch of land is spoken for. And then when I moved to Los Angeles to go to CalArts, it radically changed my relationship to history because all these materials that sort of had a built-in history were no longer available to me. So there was that material aspect my relationship to history. But additionally, I would say history for me has always been a backdoor to talk about the present or to think about what the future might look like. And when I was at Cal Arts, I actually started using ancient history partly because I had a little bit of a background in it, having had to take a core requirement in college on the Rome of the Emperor Augustus. But it was a backdoor to think about a metaphor for politics in the present that got outside of the contemporary, really ossified political binaries where people already had their minds made up and kind of delved back into a realm where people had to think a little bit and put the pieces together based on their fragmentary knowledge of the past and draw their own conclusions.
0: You got your graduate degree at CalArts. You did your undergrad at Harvard. Did you begin to think of history in the context of the future before you got to grad school? I mean, that's a, it's a fairly advanced thought, you know, even for somebody starting grad school, but it would, it would seem to me to be an even more advanced thought if you were thinking of it sooner.
1: <laughs> I think it was actually very much as a part of the conversation in grad school, because I was very interested at the time in the work of Buckminster Fuller, and every time I brought up Buckminster Fuller's writings, the immediate response would be, utopia failed, and but there's still so much possibility in this idea, but it felt like that all of the possibility of modernism was sort of already foreclosed upon. And so much of the work we were looking at had already sort of the, all of the romantic revolutionary movements of the 20th century felt like they had been thoroughly mined and there was kind of nothing left to do as much as I was interested in those periods of history. So I kind of had to go back much further and because I, um, I had studied Latin in high school and I ended up going back to the ancients. And additionally, because of growing up in Boston, I didn't have much access to contemporary art as a child and even a teenager. But I did spend a lot of time uh, traipsing through the galleries full of mummies in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And so going back to both Rome and Egypt felt natural to me, but also what the unanswered questions about Egypt. When I was a kid, I would always say, well, what's Egypt like now? And I would get a mumble from one adult or another and say, well, it's bad. And we we don't talk about Egypt now. We only think about ancient Egypt, which was always very confusing.
0: Did you make connections when you were at CalArts between Bucky Fuller's utopianism and the earlier utopianism of Brook Farm and Concord Mass and the Transcendentalist where you had been previously?
1: I think maybe a little bit with the transcendentalist, certainly, but I think Buckminster Fuller in particular, because he was thinking about this notion of total design and his idea of working against specialization, which I see particularly now is a huge problem socially thinking about not only the work of artists, but people working in various fields where they're very much siloed and not encouraged to work outside of their discipline. I found Fuller's ideas particularly provocative in terms of rethinking also what it meant to be an artist and how we could get away from the notion of being kind of contained within one discipline or one specific way of working and all of the unseen baggage that comes with that
0: So there's one that's one ingredient of 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 your work another is that you don't have stock material or materials you use in making work almost darn near Uh, Everything you've done for the last 10 years has involved using completely different stuff, whether it's bronze or concrete or, or gold paint or all kinds of stuff. When do you begin to bring the question of expressing an idea with certain materials to the historical nut?
1: For me, the idea always comes first, and these ideas often come out of a fragment of text that I've stumbled across looking into something else, or occasionally there's a material inspiration that I might find traveling in a foreign museum or something, and then I kind of look up what the object is and find out a little bit more about it, but there are these kind of non-linear rabbit holes into which I fall. And then in trying to turn them back into artworks, I actually have to sort of forget a lot of the details and then think about how to materialize them. But the material for me is always contingent on the content and uh, what material is both conceptually appropriate, but also viscerally, physically appropriate. And so I think about... I came into sculpture through looking at the minimalists and uh, in particular looking at Judd's work. And there's like a large degree of phenomenology that, or phenomenological relationships that are set up in relationship to the the way that I scaled the sculptures, the tactile qualities of them, and the sort of real hands-on physical immediacy. I think the other thing that's probably important to say at this point is I... I started sculpture relatively late. Somehow someone allowed me to do a thesis in college. It was going to be an installation thesis. And Annette Lemieux, um, in December of my senior year of college, was on the floor of my studio showing me how to drive a screw into a two-by-four because I didn't know (laughs) that. So I went to two very conceptual programs that were almost ideologically opposed to teaching you how to do anything. And so a lot of the work that the technical processes I've used have been self taught or learned through asking other artists or uh, fabricators. But I guess I've always thought of the mark of sort of my imperfect hand as kind of a political gesture to the notion that anyone could make this stuff if they just sat down and practiced and spent enough time to do it. Like I don't think of myself as being necessarily technically masterful. But I think I, for me, I also many of the artists whose work has inspired me, if you think of Joseph Boyce or Gordon Matta-Clark, Louise Bourgeois, that they had a real range of material manifestations of their practices. And I've always been interested in operating on this margin where I'm uncertain as to whether the work is possible and rather than kind of fall back into my comfort zone with things that I already know how to do.
0: We're going to come back to artists and art history a little later on. Do you ever have to resist falling in love with the material and wanting to go back to it?
1: Yes. I would say I'm also incapable of walking into the studio and sort of arbitrarily painting something pink. I have generally have to have a reason behind the decision and also maybe there's a degree of restraint. But it also actually took me quite a while to allow myself the space to work intuitively, even within a conceptual parameter, because I just didn't, on some very basic level, I didn't trust my hands and didn't maybe trust that there was a non-analytical way that conceptual work could be produced. But it also has been important in the development of the work for me to let go and allow Some of the intuitive connections between different ideas and histories to emerge and also occasionally intuitive choices of material when I don't have a very formal analytic justification for it.
0: Well, let's pivot to Open House, the Public Art Fund Commission that's on view now in New York. Did you pick the site or did the Public Art Fund come to you, the commissioner, come to you and say, what about here?
1: We looked at a large number of sites. I think I did a tour with Andrea Hickey, who was a curator's earlier at the Public Art Fund, and viewed all of the sites that the Public Art Fund regularly works on, as well as considering the possibility of an alternate site. And it actually took me a while to come back to Doris Friedman Plaza as a possibility. As the project, the form of the project grew more and more, Concrete, forgive the pun, a lot of what was important to me was actually the proportion of the original ballroom to which Open House refers. And it turns out the Doris Friedman Plaza is, in fact, large enough and almost. It's very similar in size to the proportions of the original ballroom, but it was actually hard for me to understand that at first. And a lot of my initial resistance to the site was the fact that it has so often been used with a single placement directly across the entrance to the park and that the area kind of coming out to the sidewalk on the south side or the extension towards the corner on the east side of the, the plaza usually isn't utilized. And additionally, the fact that that the street is so the street side on the south side is so exposed that i want when I wanted to create a sense of an interior, it felt impossible in that space, and so it took a while to develop a plan for allowing that to happen.
0: You looked at a number of sites and and you settled on the plaza in the southeast corner of of the park. Was some of the attraction the staging possibilities, if you will, of the site did you already have some historical idea in mind?
1: The idea for the piece actually came before the site. I was approached about doing a commission for one of New York's public parks with the Public Art Fund. And we looked at a number of their potential sites. But as I started just researching public parks in New York, I came across the obvious references like Frederick Law Olmsted. But then something very unexpected came up in all of the JSTAR documents that I was looking at. And there were all these texts written in the 1980s that talked about the idea of people occupying the park and using the park being like vermin and that the people were really the problem that was making the parks unsafe, which felt so antithetical to the notion of a public park and public space. And that really stuck with me. And that became the kernel that somehow sent me into investigating the Gilded Age and thinking about this question of who whose space is public space and who has the right to occupy this space. And... I came to the architect Stanford White through that and developed the piece out of that. It was only, we actually already had an image of the piece before we had the site, and it was a matter of uh, figuring out where it would be possible to construct this type of space given the available options. Why concrete? Concrete has a long history of. It was first perfected by the Romans, notably in Nero's Domus Aurea, the Golden House, but also it's a material of the people, thinking about it as something that was used by Le Corbusier in his early modernist housing projects that had this sort of utopic bent to them, and a lot of the international style, high modernist architecture. Today, it's used a lot in public parks, but it's very utilitarian material. And then from a material standpoint, this idea of this kind of dust that comes together and takes whatever form you mold it into. And it stood for me in stark contrast to the original materials of these chairs, which were perhaps fine hardwoods and gold filigree and damask tapestry.
0: That's, that's interesting you you've made chairs before so to speak you uh, a piece called on the museum's ruin which are are and you mentioned le corbusier which are which are chairs cast from kind of concrete-ish rubble i mean there's other stuff in the rubble at the at the, at the when the fogg art museum at harvard was renovated into the harvard art museums is there a relationship between those chairs and these chairs in in your mind in your method in your approach, or is it all coincidence? <laughs>
1: No, those chairs are actually cast from rubble from the Fog Museum renovation. So the chunks of brick in the chairs are actually brick from the walls of the fog that we're able to source. And then it's mixed with a lightweight concrete aggregate. So the concrete is a little bit different just materially because in this case, the detail was important. And in that case, I wanted this kind of much chunkier rough feel of it. In that case, I was thinking really, there in both pieces, there's sort of a material transformation. And in that instance, I was thinking about this notion of the Corbusier building, which is sort of an, an anomaly in this Ivy Lake brick and mortar architecture that it sits amongst. The idea of that architecture kind of cannibalizing this symbol of the kind of old school New England elite in some way. In this instance, the concrete kind of is poured into the form and takes on the form of a formerly kind of elitist chair.
0: So there's no, or is there a special weight to a chair as revealing something about place time, people who used it?
1: I don't know if I think about the chairs as... Place in time, but I thought in particular one of the things I was drawn to in the historic photograph that I worked from for Open House was that the chairs were sort of scattered about the room as though everyone had kind of gotten up and left the party and no one rearranged them. And there's one chair that sort of was off completely, abandoned in the middle of the space. That we cited a chair that faces the corner of. Uh, 60th and 5th Avenue in a similar manner so that you have this one solitary chair. And I think about who would have been sitting in that chair. So there definitely is a, a kind of human quality to them. But the the randomness actually in the, the open house piece is sort of important in that sense.
0: So I understand that what I'm about to ask is outside your conceptual framework and intent. But I think it's something people are, are going to bring to the piece, which is why I'm going to ask the question. The Mets period rooms are among the most popular and well-known things in the museum. You know, they're they're only a dozen or two dozen blocks away. Did you think through whether, or did you have to think through whether through whether that was going to be an association that people visiting the piece would bring with them, and if so, if that was something with which you had to reckon?
1: I don't think I ever thought about it directly in those terms. But interestingly, I was actually looking a lot at the Mets collection and the objects in those rooms specifically because they had been donated, some of them by J.P. Morgan, who was another client of Stanford. One of my interests in these chairs is that the way that the architect, interior designer Stanford White worked is that he would take these elaborate trips to Europe, where he would come back with many antiquities or pieces from a variety of periods, with many different Louis the Fourteenth, Fifteenth, and Sixteenth chairs, and then would have a manufacturer like Duveen's in New York recreate, say, a dozen of the chairs for a ballroom. And so, I use the Met collection in particular because many of the members of New York society during the Gilded Age donated their collections of furniture and artwork to the Met and so to get the correct proportions of these chairs I was actually looking very closely to try to match objects in the photo there's nothing from William Collins Whitney's house that I could find in the Met collection or other auction catalogs but to get if you visit the piece in person you'll notice in particular, the armchair is incredibly deep it's 30 inches and almost it feels awkward in contemporary terms but this was actually the scale of the that the Original chair might have been. And so the Met was actually a great resource for me. And when often when I'm working on a piece like this, I visit the Met or spaces like it to see objects to develop a work accurately.
0: Let's pivot to another idea that exists within a lot of your work. And that's the idea of permanence. Your relationship to permanence might be said to lean hard towards suspicion. Is that fair? Is that a fair start? (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) So I think you—you know—my take would be that you are often, or you know, your work is often fond of the permanence of an idea, say of something known to having been in existence, but suspicious of all ideas around the permanence of a physical object that might mark or reflect that idea. And your, for example, your myth of permanent material after Donald Judd, part of your LACMA series, commission, performance, objects, is kind of of, about that. You're still, and will be for some time, closer to the beginning of your career than you are to the end. But in the 10 or so years in which you've been working, have you seen... Your ideas about permanence changing because of what you've been doing or how you've been making things.
1: An older artist I was on a residency with about nine years ago told me that when I got older, I would have a very different relationship to this. But I, and I've been very aware of her words uh, for many years. It's the artist uh, Beatrice Minda, German photographer, and. I've thought a lot about this and also having studio visits sometimes where someone will say, now that you've done bronze, is everything going to be bronze afterwards? And I sort of instantly say, of course not.
0: So if I could if I could jump in really quickly, there are bronze pieces that were part of that LACMA commission, the Rodans, and also a series of bronzes you made after clay after you pressed clay on your face and made you know what we might call masks from
1: it the masks are actually ceramic Um, oh are they yes there are there's a series of smaller still lives that are created in bronze that were based
0: oh that's it that's it
1: Permanence and suspicion, though. I actually, I would go back to the classical, classical philosopher Lucretius has this quote, all things change and we change with them. And I'm interested not only in the shifts in how material changes over time, whether it's the fact that the patina and a metal will shift, everything except gold will change in some way or another. And there seems to be this an incredible amount of energy and capital invested in art in creating the illusion of timelessness. And for me, that always felt completely antithetical to just how the physical world works. But additionally, I think about the way that ideas and values shift over time and that how these material changes are emblematic of that. And so whether uh, something is held up on a pedestal behind glass in a vitrine or that it's left in the ground to rot because we already have six of the best examples of that on view. It's all contingent on how value is assigned. And I think underlying all of this for me or the relationship to permanence has to do with the question of cultural value and the arbitrary and declarative nature of value.
0: I want to talk more about that in a moment, but, but before we get there, has your own idea about how relatively permanent you want your work to be and how long you want specific objects to last changed since since you started?
1: I don't think it's changed, but I think I have become maybe more aware of the permanence of different things and done uh, the work to educate myself, for example, in making the papier-mâché pieces that I'm using an acid-free paper, or if I want to use newspaper to treat it with a neutralizing agent, maybe to mitigate some of the change. But I think I'm also unwilling to give up the range of possibilities that materials that are less quote-unquote permanent or perceived to be permanent, like papier-mâché, offer, or materials like even in the last year I've begun experimenting with 3D printing, and there's the potential... With Depending on what one prints with, some of those materials will not last forever, but perhaps we make a point of saving all the files with the possibility that if necessary, they could be reprinted. So I think there's an awareness of kind of answering the question, what happens if, because those ifs invariably come up over time, but I'm resistant to taking a conservative position or pretending something that I know to be untrue, which is that I can prevent change from happening.
0: My guest is Liz Glynn. We'll be right back after a break. The Modern Art Notes podcast is going back on the road. Ohioans, please join Nancy Rubens and me at the Wexner Center for the Arts on Thursday, April 13th at 4.30 p.m. Rubens is among the artists included in the Wexner's upcoming show, Gray Matters, which is a survey of 37 artists who have explored working on Greys Eye. After our live audience taping, Nancy Rubens and Sarah Oppenheimer, whose S337473 is on view now at the Wexner, will sign their recent books. We all hope to see you at the Wexner on Thursday, April 13th at 4.30 p.m. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale, and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, visit mfah.org slash muick for more. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Sarah Oppenheimer, S337473, and Carmen Herrera Lines of Sight through April 16th. Oppenheimer's Sight Responsive Perception Altering Installation, was created with support from a Wexner Center Artist Residency Award. Originally curated by Dana Miller for the Whitney Museum of American Art, Lines of Sight is the first museum survey of Herrera's elegant, geometric work in nearly two decades. And this is the show's only stop outside of New York City. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Liz Glynn. So you mentioned a moment ago that one of the things that's interesting about permanence is what it teaches us about, uh, or what it reveals to us about what society values. Throughout the history of art, men have, it is objects made by men that have been given the greatest cultural weight whereas objects made by women say for example miniatures painted on ivory or textiles either either in the 18th and 19th century or even more recently with an artist like Sheila Hicks objects intended to have less permanence tended to be more likely to be made by women was that kind of gender binary important in your developing your ideas about permanence
1: I don't know if I ever thought about it in a gendered way, but I, I know that in terms of my interest in using my own body in making sculpture, that as a person that isn't naturally that large, I am interested in the notion of ambition of a smaller or a female body or the idea that the idea that a, small, a different body can have um, an equal force and an equal weight, or perhaps a a hefty weight of a different nature. But I guess I also have resisted, I think I've resisted the notion of there being a feminine sculpture or a masculine sculpture, because if, especially looking at the history of 20th century sculpture, there are a lot of, if you think about uh, Louise Nevelson and Louise Bourgeois, uh, that there are these very significant works that were produced by them. And I think, I think maybe in some ways I resisted the notion of working with conventionally feminine materials, but also just wasn't, wasn't what I was naturally drawn to.
0: But going a bit beyond materials, just to kind of the question of cultural meaning and lastingness, which is probably a made up word, but that's all right. (laughs) Did you notice as a grad student or in the early years of your practice that men were the ones who tended to work with the objects that were expected to last the longest?
1: I guess I've had an awareness of certainly like a difference in how perhaps a gender difference in how works are circulated. But for me, I... I had a mother who would, you know, spend the weekends out repairing the house and using tools and was very active, but never necessarily called herself a feminist. She just sort of did it. And I think that that kind of having a mother that kind of came of age in a pre-feminist generation to some degree, but with um, a lot of attitudes that today one might term as feminist, I think I've taken a similar approach to the work where I felt like there was there was a politic in me assuming that position, but that it wasn't. I was just sort of aware that I could do those things. And I did. I just sort of did them for the sake of doing them to prove that it could be done. Perhaps. I don't know if that answers the question.
0: No, I mean, I think I think it does, because I think to a certain, you know, to maybe the generation of artists before you, I'm thinking of people like Nancy Rubens or, you know, who, who started out making work that was intentionally impermanent you know out of wet clay that she knew would disintegrate in half an hour or Jackie Windsor who who made works that it never you know out in in the landscape or taking objects from the landscape and bringing them into say a college campus environment and 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 making works that that she just assumed would deteriorate in four months because they were natural materials and there was weather to them the idea of impermanence was kind of specific, especially to Windsor, was specifically feminist, that it was that it was driving home a point.
1: For me, the notion of impermanence is much more human. And,
0: and multi-generational. Maybe.
1: Multi-generational, historic, and much more to do with the historic materialism, really. And thinking about the way sort of the nature, the fragility of not only the human body, but also these, the way that institutions, which are seemingly monolithic or governments can crumble actually very quickly. And the impermanence for me in the material has always been a metaphor for these much larger structures, rather than thinking about it on a more personal or a gendered level. There's certainly a, maybe a silent awareness of the gender on my part, but it's for me, the uh, larger arcs of history are much more what I'm thinking of consciously when I'm electing to use an impermanent material.
0: That'll guarantee future commissions from large art museums, them being reminded <laughs> of the temporariness of their administration. I, I, I joke, but you've done lots of art museum commissions, such as even at MOCA, which which is...
1: Well, MOCA actually directly addressed the notion of the or imper potential impermanence of the institution
0: and and in a way that was art historically really smart because you sort of set a museum in LA County on fire
1: figuratively the initial proposal what I wanted to do at first we mocha at the time was sort of politically fraught to sleep to understate the case. And there was this sort of like, I think the crass way of putting it would be like, this museum is dead to me, you're dead to its mission of being the artist museum. And I sort of wanted to start with this idea of like, well, what does it mean to do a project with this institution? And can like can it come back from the dead essentially? So the, the title of the series of performances was called Loving You is Like uh, F, I will keep this polite for children, in the dead and the group of curators and administrators I was working with knew that the U in the title was Mocha, very bluntly. And it began with this effigy, that effigy burnt in flames of a steel frame structure that was half based on the architecture of the Crystal Palace, the sort of archetype of the modern exhibition structure.
0: The London, the London structure.
1: Yes, the London Crystal Palace. But the archway had some formal resonance with Mocha's Grand Avenue building. And so, I felt like it was
0: we we should note you were doing this in the plaza of the building.
1: Yes. um, Set up. We actually created a video of the piece burning an effigy offsite with um, as it is L.A. with Hollywood pyrotechnicians. Having watched them set this thing aflame, I felt like, well, actually they know how to do this safely. It could happen on the museum grounds, but institutional regulations do not allow for such things. So it was activated then in a three-part performance with the percussionist Corey Fogel creating a score that Corey Sumlin have collaborated with for many years since. And he began with something that kind of banged on the structure as it was being taken apart. Then the pieces carried up to the plaza level where, and as the structure's taken apart, different pieces of colored glass emerge. This was inspired by Paul Sheerbart's techno-utopic novel, The Gray Cloth, or 10% White. The piece's light was projected through the glass to create this sort of human-powered kaleidoscope, and then I systematically broke 64 pieces of colored glass onto a light box, which then became a dance floor, at which point two dancers stepped out and performed Chopin's last waltz to finish the piece. That was a rather long description.
0: Yeah, lots of layers of of things there. Two questions about that comma, the piece. Were you intentionally or semi-intentionally trying to, I don't know what the right phrase is, engage Ed Ruscha's famed L.A. County Museum on Fire?
1: It wasn't something I was thinking about at the time. I would say actually at all. I hate to say it, but there was sort of at that point, so I was so aware of Destruction in my own work, or other pieces, maybe that engage with fire. If you think about maybe Ana Mendieta's work, but also just sort of more of the primeval, ritualistic nature of fire, or the idea of the effigy. I was thinking more about that, and even traditions of parades and uh, religious rituals, than I was at the Ed Ruscha reference.
0: So your description of that was great. uh, Of the piece was great because it did better than I could have set up in a question point out how many layers of references and histories and overlapping stuff there often is in your work. When you're making a work or doing a project or a series of performances, do you think about or wonder whether you're packing too many ideas or pasts or references into a piece? Do you worry about volume obscuring legibility?
1: I have to admit, after just giving you that very long-winded description, that that actually was a piece that I felt was somewhat unsuccessful because of the density of references, but also that because of the speed of the, um, the deadline on which I was producing the piece, a lot of the decisions on how such uh, references were rendered formally didn't allow some of the ideas to translate viscerally to the viewer, I felt. And so for me, one of the things that's actually very important is to allow the references to remain accessible and to allow the viewer to kind of come to their own conclusion and not to use something that's so obscure that most people won't know anything about it. So I tend towards things that if people hear a description of it in passing. They would have be able to form their own idea of it or ha- already have an image in their head. I'm not interested in kind of proving my own skill to dig up arcana through the references that I'm using. The piece that actually followed in the Mocha series, which I going into it I thought was a much, almost too simple a structure, actually Ended up being much more successful, which was just um, a blindfolded tour of the museum where guests would navigate to the sound of the security guards jangling keys. And then each guard in turn would read them a line of modernist poetry about crisis and loss. So the first the title was Like a Patient Aetherized Upon a Table or Mocha Goes Dark in reference to Mocha Being Closed for Six Months. And it was just lines of poetry from Eliot, uh, T.S. Eliot and Apollinaire, but that really referred to this notion of kind of crisis and loss and the question of one's own mortality in relationship to the mortality of the institution. It was sort of very simple, but I think the it allowed a lot more space for the viewer to expand upon the ideas rather than being incredibly densely packed. That said, I'm sitting here looking at images of a show that I'm working on for Mass Mocha of next year entitled The Archaeology of Another Possible Future, which is going to be packed with encyclopedic references, but hopefully they will all be intuitively legible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's in uh, Mass Mocha's Building 5. I think it opens in October, uh, October of this year, actually. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. We've been talking about history and permanence, and as part of that soup, one of the things that is in almost all of your work uh, is 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 the passage of time and what the passage of time does to to things, objects, ideas. You made a work at Sculpture Center in New York called Ransom Room. And to shortcut dramatically, there are images of it um, either on manpodcast.com or we'll send people right to your website, which has lots of images about it. You chose to build a, a sculptural installation that you would act on over time, that would change... Over the course of of the show. Did you find that changing the work over the course of the show was an effective metaphor for the passage of time?
1: I think in particular the uh, loss that is felt in the end was incredibly effective, though very labor intensive. What was nice about Sculpture Center is located in Long Island City, and they have a very dedicated audience of viewers, so a number of people saw the work at several points during its life cycle. The piece opened with this sort of mythic image of... The Emperor Atahualpa's father's palace in Cusco that had gold paneled walls and uh, golden maize in the middle, which I created out of stucco and red sculpture wax that had been coated with gold mica powder. So it appears gold, but then also has this reference to metal casting. Over the course of the installation, from the outer boroughs of Manhattan, I worked at a number of different uh, partner institutions like Cabinet and Pioneer Works, and then would cast the various ransom. As the story goes, when the Spanish conquered the Inca Empire, Pizarro Held the Emperor an- ransom for a room 14 by 21 feet dimensionally to the height of his outstretched hand and had him fill it once with gold and twice with silver. And just the scale of that material accumulation was so horrifying to me. The story ends badly. So, uh, as over the course of the installation, I accumulated this cast ransom by carrying these huge granny sacks of wax. Vessels that I cast in these different locations during the day. At the end of each day, I would walk with these huge granny bags to a subway stop, take the subway to uh,
0: four or five or six of them a day. We should point out. I mean, you're, you're, you know their pictures. They're very large. Four or five which, of them. Um, yeah.
1: For the record, the second you uh, get on the subway with something in a bag like that, it is not art, and you are a disgusting human. Um, people were <laughs> really not eager to sit next to me on the train, and so I unloaded. I would unload the ransom. But at the end of this installation, I spent a week at Sculpture Center melting down the entire contents of the room to create a series of ingots. Because as the story goes, uh, Pizarro held a mock trial, executed the emperor, and then um, had all of the gold melted down so that it would better fit on the Spanish galleons to pay for the cost of the conquest, leaving no record of the objects that were destroyed, but then careful records of how the ingots were distributed. So this idea of the installation kind of changing over time, but also in the end, this kind of beautiful mythic image is only an image, and actually the physicality of it remains in no form and is transformed into this object. I thought about it also in relationship, thinking about being in New York in the present moment of like whose stuff would be melted down and whose stuff will be preserved and saved for the museums or whatever cultural institutions exist in the future. Think about all of the IKEA junk accumulating in the outer boroughs, for example, and it was kind of a meditation on that idea.
0: Earlier in our chat, you raised a couple artists as as influences, boys, Gordon Matta-Clark, Louise Bourgeois. One I thought of right away was Anne Hamilton, and I wonder if you've spent time looking at and thinking about her work.
1: A bit, but I wouldn't cite her as a main influence, actually.
0: What in Gordon matta Gordon Matta-Clark is not one I would have come up with on my own. So-
1: Paul Teck I would throw in is another one that I'd throw in
0: to the mix. Well first Gordon Matta Clark why what what in Gordon Matta Clark was instructive is instructive
1: I for me just the, the relationship between building in the body and the idea of kind of physically acting upon a large object to alter it, but also the, the very early Gordon Matta-Clark works where there's a notion of entropy. So the work done at 112 Green Street, for example, with the agar, these things that also decayed and disappeared, and his participation in the collaborative food, that there was kind of an interdisciplinary and also a durational nature to the practice. I think also the notion of failure in a piece like Bingo, where he, oh, sorry, not Bingo, the piece where he tried to wheat paste posters onto the Berlin Wall and then was stopped by the police for the Berlin Biennale after proposing that he was going to blow up the Berlin Wall for the Biennale. And so the kind of like human failure built into the work. I think those elements, but for me, just the kind of constantly shifting nature of the architectural form was important
0: extending the timeline of 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 his stuff from one or two generations to several hundred louise bourgeois i think of her being really interested in materials and often letting those materials the materials themselves inform the work what what in her work works for you
1: With Louise Bourgeois, I've thought a lot about her work habits in a funny way. And the idea for me, because I didn't uh, come to sculpture through an intuitive grasp of the material necessarily, and sometimes it has been difficult actually for me to get out of the pile of books that are usually sitting next to me. And for a while, I had a note on my desk wall that said, work like Louise Bourgeois, but the idea of kind of letting go of a little bit of the reference and really digging into Material, but also trying to kind of make a lot. And she was actually close friends with my friend's godmother. And she would talk about going, sorry, my friend's aunt was a friend of hers. She'd go to her townhouse and she would always be making a drawing or a little sculpture. And there was always something on the kitchen table that she would just have made during the day. And so the idea of having a very daily practice I am someone that's sort of a workaholic who's always in the studio, but sometimes I spend a lot of time lost in thought and having. The idea of Louise Bourgeois wasn't maybe especially precious about all of it, but uh, was very kind of active in the making of her own work. And I think for me, it also has always been important to keep my own hand in the work, no matter what scale it's at. Even when I'm working in very large scale, it's important that it, ha- it doesn't feel corporate or dehumanized, but that there is like the sense of an individual body and an individual making decisions in the work.
0: Often when artists have influenced other artists, the influenced artist likes to, tries to find a way to tip her hat to the previous artists within the work. And a couple of times, you know, when we were talking about Ruchet, for example, it, it struck me, oh, nope, none of that. And I don't see a lot of tips of the hat to Louise Bourgeois or, or Gordon Matta-Clark, for example, or boys, for that matter, in the work, Are, do you try to strip the work of those references? Does that idea of engaging not just the idea, but through the physical object interest you?
1: I think occasionally it's there, but it's buried pretty deeply. For example, I've used felt, but a different felt and a more also the way they make felt right now is a little bit different. So I have been using um, in several works, I've used uh, gray industrial felt, but that's a little bit different than the wool felt that Joseph Boyes used, for example. I was thinking actually a lot about bourgeois when I was making the smaller ceramic works for the last show that I did at Paula Cooper Gallery, but I was also thinking about Bernini's terracotta work and these just very small figure studies. So I'm also, I would say, I think part of why it's maybe less legible is that I'm often working with a constellation of references that is sort of everything from... There are images on my wall right now. I'm just looking around from things that are Neolithic up to things that are sort of futuristic. And so in any given work might have some mix of those references in it. And I think it's maybe a little bit, even when I am using a material that for me might refer to another artist, it's usually so far out of that context that it's probably less obvious.
0: Finally, and recognizing that you have, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years left in your career, it's interesting to me some of what you some of the histories you have chosen not to engage. You you live in California, you've not done the 1906 earthquake and fire or Yosemite or or works that relate to say the California missions. Any any reasons why not? Any any reasons that am I am I reading too much into that or or is the answer simply hey 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 there's time left?
1: I think with me, with when I'm selecting a history, it's because it has a contemporary resonance. Right now, I am developing a project around Nero's Golden House, the palace that you created between the Palatine and Aventine Hills, sort of this pleasure palace that displays um, on land formerly occupied by the Roman working class. But thinking about this question of sort of who gets to live the good life, and that is a reference, or the the golden house isn't something that comes up a lot at the moment, but for me it felt like a good vessel for this idea at the present moment that I want to explore, but I think I do continue to try to travel, but I need to have sort of a personal relationship to the idea in some ways, and I need some form of personal encounter to dig into it. But I think additionally in the work in the last couple years, I've tried to think more about the form that the future takes and the possibility of abstraction and how to kind of extend the time span around the work so that uh, when people are looking at the work, they aren't situating the questions the work is posing firmly in the past, but rather thinking also about the present and the future.
0: Liz Glynn, thanks so much. Thank you. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents... Donald Sultan The Disaster Paintings, illustrating robust man-made structures such as industrial plants and train cars. Sultan's works exhibit a level of fragility in their propensity to be unhinged by catastrophic events. Distinguished for combining such subject matter with industrial materials such as tar and masonite tiles, The Disaster Paintings exemplify in both media and concept the vulnerability of the most progressive manufactured elements of modern culture. On view in Fort Worth through April 23rd. Also, focus Stanley Whitney. Taking the essentialist grid of minimalism as his cue, the artist's configurations are loose, uneven geometric lattices comprised of vibrant stacked color blocks that vary in hue, shape, and the handling of the paint. More at themodern.org. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words, and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words, and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. Welcome back. My next guest is Nina Chanel Abney, who joins me on the occasion of a 10-year survey titled Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush. It's at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University through July 16th. Nina Chanel Abney, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I want to start with how you build a painting, because your paintings and murals, for that matter, when you work outdoors, have a no one would mistake them for anyone else's work. You use big, booming, bright, flat color and everything in the painting, whether it's narrative or the history it references, leans on that color to draw the viewer into what might be a challenging scene or, more pointedly, an uncomfortable truth. Was there an artist or artists or maybe something outside of art that informed your loudness and flatness of color?
2: When I think about how I've just always worked, I've always been attracted to bright colors, but I guess when I got to grad school and really started to think about, I guess, the content of my work and what I wanted to Say, I thought about bright colors as a way to kind of seduce the viewer into confronting, I guess what you would say, like hard topics that I would, I usually find hard to like take in on work. Typically, I I would find like if a painting was overtly political or hitting on like a hard subject that people kind of look at it and then just walk away from it. Well, I really want to find ways to get the viewer to stay in front of the work.
0: So the colors are, or the brightness and intensity of the color is intended not just to attract people, but to make it harder to to move on.
2: Yeah. I mean, and also I'm, I've always been into very sarcastic cartoons and just the idea of some older cartoons or even something like South Park, how at the end of the day it's a cartoon, so they kind of get licensed to push the boundaries. <laughs> and <laughs> so I kind of want to take that approach to my work as well, just in how I paint figures and the colors and the humor involved as a way to kind of get the viewer to really confront issues they normally wouldn't have.
0: Does that idea extend to the composition of of your paintings? There is not a, you know, your paintings are rarely single frame. They're often broken up, either horizontally or vertically. We'll get to a little more of that in a minute. But do you think you also kind of break up the rectangle because that encourages eyes to stick around a little bit longer in the same way?
2: I feel in a very few cases I think the breaking up the space is completely intentional. A lot a lot of the times it's it in the, a lot of the work it was solutions on how I could work larger. Honestly, like I always had a small studio, I had panels in my kitchen, in my living room, so it was a way to be able to create a larger painting but in an easier way that was more manageable. I think in a few of the paintings, I don't have them all in front of me. There, it was intent or a happy mistake that happened <laughs> that made it. Uh, it worked for the content of the work.
0: One of the the already best known paintings that a major American painter has made in response to America's police violence crisis is Carrie James Marshall's painting, now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, of a. Black police officer standing in front of or leaning against a a police car. Well, l- let me start. Let me start with with Kerry's with painting. His his approach is kind of subtle and encourages the viewer to be empathetic empathetic with a police officer trapped between two situations. Did you think about and 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 I should note that a number of the officers in your paintings are are also black. Did you find out about his painting at some point last year when he made it? Did you think about that kind of approach and reject it?
2: No, I actually I went to his show. I'm trying to remember what the what the painting looked like, but I had I did not know about that painting prior to creating the work for that show. Usually, when I approach the subject, I I really try to come from As neutral as point of view as I can so because I want to cover all sides on a topic like play devil's advocate have contradictions everything in the work so I want to see what does it look like for a black police officer to pull over a black man or two white officers to pull over a black woman or and just kind of put all these different possibilities out there. So I don't think I ever try to make someone empathetic for any of the figures in my work. You know, I, I try to make it hard to even maybe give an emotion, specific emotion to a figure.
0: There are works of yours in, in which half of a painting is a white officer arresting a black Person, suspect, non suspect, its you know, it's ambiguous in the painting. And on the other half of the painting, it's the other way around. One of the thoughts I had when I first saw your police violence oriented paintings was that your take and approach represents a real point of generational difference with, say, Carrie James Marshall's generation, that it could be argued that maybe you're, you know, as, as being, you know, you're 30 years younger than he is maybe that's representative of an American generation that, you know, has just kind of had it. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates is is of your generation, for example.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think it could be taken that way also. But as much as possible, like, obviously, I'm completely against uh, police violence, you know, but when I think about what I want my work to do, I want it to spark hard conversations amongst all people, all point of views. So as much as I can, I try to take myself out of it. Like, as far as my personal feelings, because if I did that, I feel like the the work would be pointed in one direction, you know? And it wouldn't allow me to do what I, I want the work to do. So I really try to come in as, like, a neutral party and just throw all these possibilities in there, regardless if I agree with them or not.
0: I think one of the ways you do that in the paintings is that words, text in your paintings has as much intellectual weight as, as images. How did you come to decide to use text?
2: I came to use text in certain points where I felt like maybe the other imagery wasn't enough, like maybe I needed text. And then I start to even see it in different ways where I just like how certain letters and numbers, how they look, and saw them more as just shapes. So they can function different ways in the work. But, you know, sometimes they're, they're used to bring in, I guess, facts in a work. Like, so say I have a painting and I have a date for... A specific event in history, but I don't want it to be very obvious. I'll hide that. I'll use that number somewhere in the painting rather than spelling out what that event is. So sometimes they're also just clues to other things that are going on and things to think about.
0: Sometimes you give police officers numbers on their uniforms almost more like they are football or basketball players with jerseys, you know, where the numbers are on the front. There are lots of inducements in each painting to to encourage the viewer to think about what weight or what meaning a letter or a number or a, a a reference might might have. Is there a particular artist or two you from whom you took the way you use text and numbers or symbols for that matter?
2: For sure, Stuart Davis. I was introduced to his work fairly late, probably. 2012, I was working on a very large, like a 60-foot-long triptych of triptychs, and Larry Sims, who's who wrote actually maybe a couple of books on Stuart Davis, came into my studio and immediately brought his name to my attention. I had never seen his work, and I was blown away when I saw it. And since then, he's definitely an influence in Actually, not too long ago, me and Laurie did a walkthrough of his show at the Whitney Museum. So it all kind of came full circle in a good there was, way.
0: There was a retrospective at the Whitney. It's it just closed actually, as we're taping this at the National Gallery of Art.
2: Yeah, so we we walked through the show. And, you know, I talked about my work. He talked about his work, and it w- it was cool to come full circle. And even in preparing for that, I learned so much more about his work and saw so many similarities of how how we create
0: paintings the the other art historical reference that sure seems like it must be there is collage oh yeah do you use collage to plan paintings out or is it more that having seen a lot of you know a century's worth of collage that something in that works for you
2: well I mean, I'm not sure how many people know this, but I don't plan any of my paintings out, so it's all intuitive, it's all just a slow build-up and layering process. But I was asked to do a collage for a Romare Bearden-inspired show at Studio Museum, and it was the first collage that I had ever done. And just in doing that, I it, it really changed how I think about creating my paintings and about layering, like I feel like I had layered before, but it definitely changed changed it even more when I did that collage. In what way? Well, I mean, it had me think about more breaking down different elements to, to very simple shapes. Cause I mean, in my way of collaging, I was cutting out, hand cutting out everything. Like if I wanted to put a hand and knowing how difficult that was. so how could I simplify simplify a hand down so much that everyone still knows what it is, but, you know, it's something that I can cut out. And it had me think about just creating different symbols and simplifying things to, I guess, the bare minimum, where it's still universal, where everyone would know that's a nose, that's a hand or or whatever. But I think that's how it changed it. And also because I feel like, How I paint or my skill level, I'm not able to ever, I guess, paint very realistically. I, I never have been. So over time, I've found ways to still achieve what I wanted to, but in a different way.
0: In a lot of your paintings, and by a lot, I mean dozens, both X's, that is, you know, the letter or the form X recurs throughout, as do rainbow motifs, often in in the form of triangles or, or in hearts. Do those shapes and, and uses of color within them have specific meanings that you migrate from painting to painting, even if it's only in your own head? Or... Do they exist compositionally to fill fill space or or why why are why is that a move that works for you?
2: Well, I feel like when I was getting I guess more interested in kind of using symbols, the X I was very drawn to because it could be used to cross something out I'd put X's on eyes and then that person's dead <laughs> you know or or whatever it allowed for Different options, different meanings
0: across nipples, for example.
2: Yeah, exactly. To censor something, or I just liked the versatility of it. So I, with every all the symbols I use now, I, that's what I'm drawn to. So that the viewer can, you know, place a meaning on something. It doesn't have to be one set thing. And so, yeah, they work for content. They work just for composition. Sometimes they work to obscure a narrative or a word or...
0: And what about the rainbow motifs and especially in Triangles and Hearts?
2: I mean, I feel like that's supposed to be happy imagery. (laughs) So just another, depending on what the painting is about, you know, to just kind of contradict all of it and put a heart in it. Or maybe a cop doing something that's I don't know bad to one of the other figures and then but it's a heart on his uniform and what does that mean what could that mean So i'm always trying to just throw the viewer off allow them to kind of just raise many questions you know
0: finally and i, I want to emphasize th- this is going to sound like a lighthearted question but but i don't mean it in that spirit um, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com that make that clear, I think. There are a lot of dogs in your paintings, and they're not usually cuddly puppies. I can think of real-life American historical reasons, past and present, for dogs to be both actual and kind of symbols of white uh, police-oriented oppression and violence, but I wonder how you came to decide that not only would you use dogs in one painting, but that you would go back to them again and again?
2: I don't even remember the first time I painted an animal, maybe a a painting that... I have a few paintings I don't think anyone's ever seen that have horses in them. I I guess with every every body of work, every painting, I, I try to challenge myself to do something different. So if I'm always painting people, then... Why not try (laughs) to paint an animal and what does that mean? And thinking about symbolic reasons for certain animals. So, yeah, some of the paintings I could think of, the dogs are very violent. And I think it's just, it speaks to the content of those paintings.
0: I also wanted to ask you about murals. Murals have, in in North American art history, I'm trying to consciously include Mexico in in the framing of my question, a particular political relationship, both in terms of the content of the mural and kind of the dem- democraticness of the expected audience. I don't know how many murals you've made, but I know you made one for Library Street Collective in Detroit last year. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. Did they approach you? Did you approach them? And why was a mural something that was interesting to you?
2: Well, they approached me. I I set out to start to do some murals because I, I love to work very large scale. And then I also wanted to think of ways where I could broaden my audience in a major way. So I did my first mural. It's in Newark, New Jersey, and it's actually like about 175 feet long. And once I tackled that and I really found a way to adapt my work to working that way, then I I was hooked ever since. (laughs) So Library Street Collective approached me about doing something in the belt in Detroit. And so that's how that came about.
0: You mentioned you were interested in in making, you know, in reaching a, a, a broader audience. Were you attracted to the politics of the form?
2: Yeah, a little bit too. I mean, I did one in Portland. It's humongous. And I I had an idea of just somehow in, in thinking about hieroglyphics and someone coming upon, like, the mural and it just, like, inserting uh, maybe even people of color, figures of color in areas that they normally wouldn't be. So for that entire huge mural, I, I did, like, black Egyptians, you know, so I I get fun in that too and kind of like, I don't know, taking over all these different places around the United States, hopefully, and bringing something that's not there, you know, something underrepresented or not represented at all.
0: So you want to do more of them?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've done, let's see, I've done one in Newark. I've done one in Portland. There's one in Detroit. Yeah, I've, I've started to do more. I probably did about five or six so far.
0: Nina Chanel Abney, thanks so much for talking with me.
2: Oh, thanks. No problem.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.